Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. And now, join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. Did Jesus tell his disciples to carry swords for self-defense? That's the question we'll answer on this episode of Word Matters. I'm Brandon Smith, brand manager for the HCSB, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Trevin Wax, managing editor of The Gospel Project. And also joining us today is Dr. Preston Sprinkle, vice president of Eternal, uh, Eternity Bible College's Boise Extension, and author of uh, lots of just fantastic books, including uh, Racing Hell, People to be Loved, I think an underrated book that you did with Michael Bird on the faith of Jesus Christ. Uh, so a bunch of great books, um, and we'll be talking today about uh, his book, Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence. So Preston, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here, Brandon. Thanks for having me on. So like I said, my favorite book of yours, um, I didn't say this, my favorite book of yours is Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence. Um, I think it's just one of the best cases for nonviolence I've read, and what compels me about it um, is that you're not kind of arguing for the sort of um, disconnected passivism, kind of the the stereotypical idea of pacifism that you kind of just, um, you know, roll over, let things happen, don't care about the oppressed, those kind of uh, negative connotations that come with it, but that you argue uh, for more of a nonviolent position that's kind of a cruciformed way uh, to fight evil. So can you maybe give us just a brief overview for those who aren't aware of maybe just a general idea of what your views are on violence in the Bible? Well, thanks, Brandon. That's uh, such a high compliment coming from you. It, you know, it's a very difficult topic and an extremely difficult book to write because there's so many different questions and different even fields of study that goes into constructing a Christian view of violence. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's, um, it's a, yeah, so it was, I, I got a lot of gray hair after writing that book. But I, <laughs> I it. And, uh, so my, my, you know, there's, I would say about 20 different types of pacifism in the world. And I, I probably reject aggressively 18 of those times. <laughs> I mean, so I, I, um, a phrase that I didn't use in the book, but that I've been using more recently just to separate myself from other brands of pacifism is that I endorse a Christocentric nonviolent ethic. Um, and so everything kind of comes back to and flows from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as, as a, not just an atone, an atoning means for taking care of our sin, but also as a pattern for how to defeat evil. And I, and I see that more and more in scripture all over the place, in the book of Revelation, throughout the Gospels, and in the, in the letters, and, and I mean, on through the early church. So, uh, yeah, my, my <laughs> as I say in the book, I kind of was, as I put it, was sort of dragged into a nonviolent ethic, kicking and screaming, hmm. uh, and I was dragged there by the text of scripture. And, and that's not, I want to say, people who disagree with me are not biblical. There's certainly a lot of really difficult questions that surround this, but it is strictly because of the text of scripture that I hold this position. I, I, I would never hold this position at all if it wasn't for the New Testament. Well, Preston, that, that's a great, great lead into the particular text that we want to look at, um, at today. One of the, one of the, the texts that gets trotted out by people on both sides of the debate over, you know, pacifism or just war theory or, uh, violent self-defense, nonviolent self-defense. I mean, all the different kind shades of response that you were talking about. One of those texts is Luke 22, uh, 36 through 38. And so 
I'm going to I'm going to just read that now from the HCSB. And then afterwards, I want to ask you a question about the translation and see what you you think. Does that sound good? Sure. Okay. So uh, the text starts out this way. Speaking of Jesus, uh, then he said to them, but now whoever has a money bag should take it and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the outlaws. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. Enough of that, he told them. So the HCSB here has when um, he has Jesus saying, uh, you know, go and uh, uh, sell your robe, buy a sword. When they say they've got two swords, Jesus's response in the HCSB anyway is enough of that. Other translations may say something like it is enough. So on, on the one hand, you have some people, some translations interpreting this as if Jesus is saying, yes, two is sufficient for doing what I told you to do. I told you to go get swords. And then you've got other translations that imply that, that the disciples may have misunderstood what's going on. And he's sort of saying enough of that, you know, that's, that's uh, no more talk of that. So where do you land on the translation issue? How, how is that meant to be interpreted within Luke 22? That, that's you know I have I, I actually never checked the um, Holy Christian translation on that which I and this isn't just because I'm talking to you guys I this this is uh, for the record no one's ever paid me or even nudged me to say this but I, I think the Holy Christian translation is probably the best English translation on the market it's, it's fortunate that it has been well you may not think it's unfortunate but I mean it's unfortunate <laughs> that it's sort of seen as oh that's the Southern Baptist translation I I think. It's the best translation on the market, and Scott Haifman agrees with me on that. Um, yeah, we did not. We did not pray Preston to say that, but we are very <laughs> that thankful is that he said that. Um, and the truth is, Preston, if if the uh, quote sixteen million Southern Baptists considered this their Bible, we would sell a lot of Holman Christian Standard <laughs> Bibles. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> anyway, it's, it's, I don't think it's a denominational because people get well. We're getting off track here, but anyway. Um, so that's fascinating that it translates that 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 is one very valid um, way of understanding that phrase. Now, I, I tend to, in fact, I think it's I. Howard Marshall, the the late, you know, world-renowned New Testament theologian. If I remember correctly, um, he says that that's the meaning of the phrase that it's not that the swords are enough, and then of course that raises the question: enough for what? Um, but that he says that this phrase. And please don't quote, I, I think it's him, but there was, it was either him or another, uh, maybe it was Daryl Bach or somebody else, um, that said that the phrase given parallels elsewhere has to do with Jesus's response to their misunderstanding of his sort of, you know, proverbial phrase about going and buying two swords. So personally, I don't know, man, I, I, I think it could go either way. Um, I, you know, in the Greek, it says it is enough. And, and personally, when a translation isn't rock solid, like, it, it, you know, it still is. It seems that the Holman here is is making more of an interpretation rather than a raw translation. So even though I give praises to the Holman, I, I think I would personally probably rather leave it more literal in the Greek and let the interpreter decide on what that means. But I still give hats off. I think that that's... Um, you know, the Holman has definitely taken a, a certain interpretation of this passage. Well, we'll, I think... we'll just edit that out. You saying that we'll edit that part out later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Daryl Bach, he, he says too, you know, talking about Marshall and, and Bach also says, 
you know, it symbolically points to them being ready or them being self-sufficient uh, in yeah. the face of their imminent persecution. I know in your book you had mentioned that view and Marshall's view, and uh, you kind of said, you know, that it, it could be one of those things. But either way, what he's not saying is take it with you so that you can lock the ear off of a Roman soldier if they come after us, which is what Peter does in his rebuke for later. So, so how do you put all that together, and where do you kind of land on that in the end? Well, when I first I, I started studying this passage as the sort of you know the as, as one of the handful of passages in the New Testament that seems to go against my nonviolent view. I mean, the cleansing of the temple is one. Mm -hmm. Jesus's violent return in Revelation 19 is one. And of course, Luke, Luke 22 is one that says, wait a minute, if Jesus really is advocating for a nonviolent ethic, why does he tell his disciples to buy swords here? And I, when I, when I tackle these issues, I, I try to, as any honest interpreter tries to, you know, I want to be unbiased. I don't want to just immediately jump in and say, no, it can't mean that because I don't want it to mean that. Like, I really want to say, okay, well, what does this mean? And I just still was struck that like, is Jesus really commanding them to arm themselves with swords so that if somebody tries to harm them on the way that they, they can kind of run them through and kill them. And it's like, how does that, how does that square with what he said a few chapters earlier, you know, to love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. It just seemed to be incongruent with Jesus's dominant nonviolent ethic he's been teaching. But then I, I looked up and I said, okay, I want to get this right. So I went to a library. I got 10 of the most well-respected commentators on Luke. None of them were pacifists, by the way. And I only found one commentator that argued that this passage is teaching self-defense. Nine of the 10, again, none of them were pacifists, hmm. all said uh, that, that you know, Jesus clearly isn't talking about self-defense here. And they argue from the context. I have seen some people um, uh, who aren't writing commentaries on the book, but just kind of writing you know, more general stuff you know, reference this passage and say, well, Jesus teaches self-defense. They kind of quote it and move on. But the people who have actually looked deeply into the text, Howard Marshall, Daryl Bach, Joseph Fitzmaier, William Hendrickson, popular reform commentator, mm -hmm. says that the sword must be interpreted figuratively. Like for him, it's not even, it must be interpreted figuratively. It's not even up for grabs. And so um, I was comforted by, I wasn't, you know, by the fact that I wasn't the only one who was, uh, not eager to go with the self-defense view here. Well, it's it's interesting you see Luke 22 get get um, brought out by people on both sides of this issue. So I'm I, I guess the the place that frustrates me the most is when I see people appealing to Luke 22 as the um, as as some sort of just hard and fast. This is evidence that Jesus was for self-defense, that he was for the Second Amendment, you know, the right to bear arms kind of uh, logic. Or, But then you have on the other side, well, Jesus right then in the garden when they do pull out the sword, Jesus is telling him to put that away. And you've got the, the, the very uh, stark uh, description of those who, who live by the sword, die by the sword, you know, all taking place. So, uh, so it seems like uh, this is a difficult text, no matter how you try to right. interpret it no matter what perspective you come from uh my my concern and what i hope that commentators and preachers and especially people that uh might be politically oriented would do is, is simply to say uh let's be careful to not use a text that is difficult to make it a a blanket clear cut this must be jesus's will for all of his followers um, regardless of which side you fall on, on that question. Right. And I think it's so important for people, and this, this is just basic 
Bible interpretation, you know, advice. Um, whenever you look at a passage like this, you have to pay attention to its immediate context. And and if there's any, you know, difficulties within its immediate context, we have to we have to address those first before we enlist this passage to address a broader ethical conversation. So the the two main questions we have to answer in this in this text is, you know, right after he says, uh, let no one who has a sword sell his cloak or sell his robe and buy one. Then he follows that up with for or because or since I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled. He was numbered among his transgressors. So the first question is, how do these two verses relate? Because clearly, textually, exegetically, there's a connection here. The two swords somehow contributes to the fulfillment of, quote, he was numbered among the transgressors. That's the first question we have to answer. The second textual question has to do with the one we, we, we let off with. This whole phrase, you know, when they say, hey, look, we got two swords, you know, and he says, is enough or uh, what, how does the Holman say? Uh, enough of that. Enough of that. You know, is Jesus rolling his eyes saying, oh, my gosh, these guys took me literally yet again. They got, <laughs> they've been packing this whole time and he's rolling his eyes. Um, is, he, is it that or is he saying, you know what? OK, I think that's that's going to be enough to cause me to be numbered among my transgressors. Because really, that's the main the main drive here is that Jesus, you have a fulfillment text here where he Jesus is going to be numbered among his transgressors. Well, it's a, it's interesting. It was one commentary I remember seeing about this that that said uh, it, it might actually be literal, not figurative, but it still might not have been that Jesus was saying you're going to take the sword to use it. Like the sword was just sort of the gear that you took when you went on a journey. So you, you almost like if you have a security alarm or you have you, just walking outside with that kind of uh, equipment, that kind of gear with your bag and, you know, whatever else you have was one way of simply th that's just a way of talking about we're going on a journey, get your things together. And then and then the, there was a um, and then the, the response to that, of course, would be when they're at, we're focusing on the swords, then Jesus is saying, you know, obviously that's enough. And then in the garden, when they use it, he rebukes them. So that's yeah. a one way where it's literal, but it's also it, just to show the complexity of this passage. Sure. It, it, that's a literal interpretation, but it's still uh, uh, not condoning the, the use of the sword, even in, in that case in self-defense. Yeah. And it is strange too. I think that he is, if he's not, this is one of the arguments is that if he's not condoning some sort of violent use with the swords, why the sword? So Trevin talks about, well, it's just part of carrying, you know, going on a, on a trip. But the other side is, why would he not use another al analogy rather than sword if he's trying to say something like Bach, like it's just a symbol of something else? There's got to be point. some other symbol besides a sword, you know, because why, why would it's almost like why would Jesus not expect Peter to pull the sword in verse 51 unless okay. it's like a teaching moment or something like that? So, Well, also, if they are literal, and I, I actually I, I mean, I think they for sure had two swords. And when it says he was numbered with his transgressors, you know, what does that mean? Um, it probably refers to the fact that when he was crucified, he had transgressors on both sides of him and not, you know, sometimes we always spiritualize that, but I think this is talking about political uh, transgression as in people who were not just great sinners spiritually, we're all great sinners spiritually, but people who had committed massive uh, political sin. And so, um, you know, he had two revolutionaries on both sides of him, uh, on both sides of him. And, you know, to fulfill this passage, Jesus had to be accused of being a revolutionary. You know, what we don't, what we, a lot of people don't understand is it, it Rome didn't just run around crucifying everybody that 
you know, looked at him crooked, you know, like they, right. they, it was right. actually really hard to get crucified. You had to be either like a, a, a runaway slave or a, a, a military, somebody who like uh, went AWOL from the military um, or somebody who was accused of revolution, a, a, an aggressive threat to the empire. Now, Jesus was walking around telling everybody to turn the other cheek, love your enemies. I don't think Rome's going to care too much about that. But if they're now getting a big group of people, there's a big following, like we know from, you know, the um, Palm Sunday entrance, triumphal entry. entry. And now if they find weapons on him, and the Jews are trying to get him accused before the Roman authorities, now if they find weapons on him, there's a good chance that they have evidence to actually crucify him. And so I do think that even if we take it in, in the most literal sense, it actually... Um, makes good sense in light of this whole idea that it's contributing to the fulfillment of Isaiah 52, that he was numbered among the transgressors. Yeah, and I do, I do like about you, Preston, that regardless of if people uh, kind of disagree with you or vehemently disagree with you, you are trying to make t- a textual case, which is really nice to hear. So, um, Let me just throw this out there, too. I, I, I think that there's good arguments against a nonviolent ethics. So I, I can hand them to you. I think uh, there's we can go to Romans 13. I think we can go, just build a sort of lesser of two evils ethic that sometimes uh, what may not be right in all circumstances could be used as a last resort when there's no other option. I mean, I think I can actually, so I'm not trying to like dismiss all arguments. I'm just saying that this passage textually is a very, very bad argument against nonviolent ethics. All right. So we are, we're running up on time here a little bit, but, but one last question for you, I think this will kind of help round this out. So, so how do we recommend somebody preach or teach or share the truth uh, from this text? So you've got people who are on one side, people on the other side, like Trevin mentioned, but maybe what's the big takeaway that we can all agree on, regardless of where we fall on the spectrum when it comes to this passage? Brandon, that's a really good question. I don't, I don't know if I've, <laughs> this sounds bad. I don't know if I've thought about this passage apart from it's the role that it plays in the question about violence or nonviolence. So Quite honestly, given how hot of a topic this is um, and how this passage is being used in the debate wrongly, for the most part, I think, mm-hmm. if I was to preach it, I would probably um, go there. I, I would probably open up this discussion about um, self-defense and bring up this passage and show that, you know, and, and when I'm, you know, when you, <laughs> When you blog or write a book, you can be a little more aggressive, a little you know, push people's buttons. Right. But I, on a sermon, you're shepherding your people. You don't want to. There's, there's, you don't want to stir the pot. Just stir the pot. And you're not. You, you do want to get people thinking, but you also need to communicate God's word effectively and pastorally and sensitively. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would, I would probably, yeah, preach this passage, open up a discussion about self-defense, violence, uh, and, and I would say again, very pastorally say, I don't think this is the best text to use. I don't think that that all of a sudden closes the debate. I think there's other questions that need to be asked and answered. Um, but I would probably, it would probably be a, here's a good, here's a good hermeneutical lesson, you know, in, in how to interpret the text. And I'd probably use this text in that way. I think, I think there's some wisdom in that, that you're not, um, I like the way you talk about how in a debated, very hot text like this, you're not uh, closing down discussion and saying that I, as the pastor, have the final word on this. You're, you're, you're bringing them into the conversation, and um, uh, even if not everyone in your congregation is going to be convinced of the view that you have of that particular text, uh, the one thing I think most Christians should agree on, anyway, is that um, the posture of the Christian should be away sure. from 
not should be away from violence and in in all sorts of settings. And so whether or not in the specific particularities and situations that we encounter in our lives, uh, we may come to different conclusions about what the text justifies or permits. Um, the the overarching posture, though, should be away from violence, as you see all throughout Jesus's mm-hmm. Jesus's teaching. And so um, bringing people into that conversation and hoping that they, yeah. even if they're not totally convinced of one particular interpretation, are still maintain that posture, I think is a really, is a wise way to go. Trevin, that's, that's the main point of my book. I, I do, I would say land on an absolute nonviolent ethic. I think that is, is much more difficult to get than the, you're talking about and to me that's the biggest problem is i don't think a lot of christians have that general posture i think violence isn't a absolute it's a uh, last resort maybe it's a necessary evil we you know we use it with tears and repent you know um i think people jump to it way too quickly and i think that that's where we need some serious correction well preston thanks so much for jumping on with us today really appreciate the time and the great conversation yeah thanks for having me it's been fun and trevin thanks for joining me thank you all for listening as always we will catch you next time Thanks for listening. Word Matters is presented by the Holman Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages but clear for today's readers. Find out more at hcsb.org.